This is Cruex by 2X, the podcast for learners. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Crew X by 2X. My name is Eunice, and this show is for any student listeners out there. We know that studying and learning comes with a whole set of challenges and setbacks, but we're here to help break down some of the scary and stressful mental barriers that you set in place for yourself. This series will showcase a wide range of individuals and their journeys to get to where they are now. For today's episode, we've invited Dr. Kempel from the University of British Columbia's Department of Sociology. So Dr. Kempel, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about what you do? Sure. I'm a professor of sociology at UBC. I teach social and cultural theory. I've also taught in the Arts One program, a first-year humanities program, and for the Urban Ethnographic Field School and the Go Global Seminar Abroad in Guatemala. Um, I have a PhD from the program in social and political thought at York University. That's also where I got my MA. And my undergraduate was at Wesleyan University in Connecticut in philosophy and social science. So even though I teach in sociology, my degrees are in interdisciplinary studies. I see. Well, maybe we can dive a bit more into that later on. Uh, But we're going to bring it all the way back to the very, very beginning. Uh, When you were a kid, did you know what you wanted to be? I'm sure students or children don't think to become professors at a young age. (laughs) Honestly, I did not really think about it. I I know that's something that you were asked in school compositions, you know, as in elementary school, but I didn't really give it much thought. And I certainly hadn't thought of uh, becoming a professor. My parents put a big emphasis on education. So I just knew that I would go as far as I could into my studies. I did not think I'd be a professor even until I finished my PhD. Wow. Could you tell us a bit more about what your academic experience was like then and how you kind of decided which programs to pursue? Yeah, I I went to 12 years of Catholic school. My high school was uh, an all boys Christian brothers school, which also put a strong emphasis on discipline and education and continuing on to college, to university. And when I did end up going to university, I realized that I just enjoyed a wide variety of humanities and social science courses and I largely chose them on the basis of the the charisma and the appeal that the professors had me even more than the the subject matter itself and that's what kind of got me through really pretty much all of my my education. Was there a certain encounter or lesson that really left an impact on your current position now as a professor? I would say, yeah, for sure. You know, there. I think we all have a few turning points. You know, there was a, uh, a history, two history professors and a English professor. I call them professors, but they're actually teachers in high school mm-hmm. that took a special interest in what I was doing and found my intellectual curiosity really uh, appealing. And they encouraged me along the way. And then in university, I found philosophy professor, a sociology professor, a psychology professor, and a religious studies professor, who each had a huge influence on um, kind of things I would eventually study. So I yeah, I would say it came down to those profs in particular in the courses they taught. That's amazing. Do you have something that you would consider to be your biggest failure as a student? And did you learn anything from it? My failure, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is one. In fact, I was just writing this to um, 
uh, to one of my students just last week who's gone on to do a business degree and she really enjoyed my course and but she did not get the highest grade that she she got one of the lowest grades she said that she ever got in her undergraduate career and that made me think about my experience as an undergraduate particularly in that religious studies course which was in the um the social phenomenology of a french philosopher named maurice merleau ponty i didn't really know much about philosophy or phenomenology but it was a cool course to take and it had it, it inspired me in a way that i completely didn't expect and i got my lowest grade in that course <laughs> and it's not so much that i that i think i didn't understand what was going on i actually think i lost my humility in the final uh exam it was an essay exam and i thought i think i can just toss this off and write a few things and the prof will like what i did enough because he's liked what i've done all along I was totally wrong. <laughs> I gotta be. I gotta be, which I think was the lowest grade I got, uh, certainly up into my third year. Um, but I've been thinking about that course and thinking about what I learned. And in fact, phenomenology has become a a foundation for things that I do. So it's the most important failure that I've had. I would say. Yeah. Mm, I see that speaks a lot that speaks volumes especially for students now um ever since everything moved online as well absolutely yeah <laughs> i mean i have found that you know students who who feel like they're not doing well because they're not connecting in the same way that they would in in-person classes they're actually learning other things and they know more things than they think that they know they certainly know more about working in the online environment than mm. older profs like me do. So sure. I think that's a big lesson that, that a lot of younger students can learn. I see. That's re really reassuring to hear from a professor too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we're gonna transition more to career focused questions. You mentioned previously that you didn't even realize you wanted to become a professor until after you got your PhD. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to become a professor? You know, I, I I just really like the the schooling, the educational environment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I sometimes joke to the students that I went to kindergarten and I never left school. <laughs> Even after I finished my my BA, I took a couple years teaching elementary school. So in, in the, even then, I was still in school. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just I just kept going with it. But it was really when I finished my PhD dissertation, and I had an application for a one-year term contract at uh, Concordia University, and my prof said, I think you have a career in this. That is my supervisor, my PhD supervisor, and mm. I said, oh, really? <laughs> Honestly, I wasn't looking. I didn't ask for it. I hadn't really given it too much thought. I just thought I do need one more. I need to move on from what I've done. I need to make some money, and I'd like to stay one way or another in teaching. Oh, um, see. So that it, that's sort of where my career started to build, to gain some momentum on its own was uh, teaching in these contracts and then eventually getting my my position here at UBC. Oh, I see. Did you ever consider becoming a grade school teacher? I did because I had those three uh, three summers and one full year teaching uh, third and uh, fourth and fifth graders and seventh and eighth graders. It was a, a supplementary program for kids from the inner city of Washington, DC. I learned a lot from that. It inspired me to start thinking more deeply about social inequality, especially differences in class and wealth 
and racial conflicts and inequalities. Um, but I also realized that I was really unsuited for the younger kids. Uh. <laughs> they're, they're out of control. You have to deal with their energy, their sure. attention span. And, you know, I, I work better with somewhat of a more captive audience, I would say. I see. That totally makes sense. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you help manage certain programs at UBC, such as the Ethnographic Field School and the Arts One program, or you did previously. Can you tell us a bit more about what those programs are for students who are either incoming to UBC or considering those programs? Sure. I'll start with the Arts One program. That is a small, kind of a great books, but more liberal arts, I would say, program which in some ways shrinks the university down from the massive you know, lectures that you have, uh, that, mo that even first year students have in the mainstream departments into smaller groups. There is a lecture of a hundred, but then you meet in a seminar for 18 credits. That's like three quarters of your first year program. And then also in even smaller groups of tutorials, four student tutorials. I really can't recommend this uh, program enough for, for incoming students. You get intensive interactions with fellow students in a way that you wouldn't in the larger programs and with your, uh, with your professors. Mm -hmm. And you learn about a variety of different traditions in academia, um, Western and non-Western, going back to the ancients and the early moderns to the present. And I just think that they're, they're, they're really, it's, it's a superb way to begin your program, no matter what you think you're going to do afterwards. The other programs I've been working on also replicate some of that small class environment, the seminar space. So the Urban Ethnographic Field School is taught by someone in sociology and someone in anthropology every summer. And we accept uh, up to 29 or 30 students. So that's two profs for 30 students, two TAs, and usually a cohort of two or three or four uh, student mentors from previous mm -hmm. years taking it. That's a lot of support and a lot of interaction. And, sure. uh, and they're all placed at, at community organizations, all of the students. So in addition to learning anthropology and sociology, ethnography, participant observation, they're also learning about how organizations work. And that too is really a kind of a once in a lifetime, once in a career experience from, for students who are uh, mostly pushed into you know, classes of 40 to 80 to 100, or even seminars that don't have that level of engagement. Absolutely, I totally mm -hmm. agree. <laughs> yeah. As an educator, you're always emphasizing the importance of learning. What does education mean to you and how does that play into your own personal growth? I'm sure even after getting all of your degrees, you're still learning and you're still increasing your knowledge. So, yeah, I, I mean, since I know that there'll be future university students listening to this, maybe in high school now, maybe some that are already in university, um, I have to say a big part of it is that it helped me mature as a human being, <laughs> helped me mm -hmm. to process my emotions. And I had lots of emotions It helped me to think through ideas that I hadn't been able to articulate as a kid, as a, as a, a high schooler. And honestly, it made, I think it made me into a more interesting person. <laughs> I'm, I'm profoundly shy. You wouldn't know by me talking now. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an outgoing person. I'm not 
extroverted, but I, I think I can engage with, with a variety of different people on a number of different levels. And that means that like the kinds of friends that I have, they're not actually sociologists, they're not academics. Most of my friends come from all walks of life. They do a variety of different uh, jobs and things. And, and I think that that has helped me to broaden my horizons, to continue thinking about how I can articulate ideas and feelings that I have to a variety of different audiences, not just to my colleagues or to the my captive audience of students. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think that education has, it does have a real public mission in the world. And I think that's the kind of dimension that I'm able to explore through the Urban Ethnographic Field School, or as I mentioned earlier, the, go, the global seminar in Guatemala. So it helps me to broaden my horizons and take and, and to expose and to test my, my limits, my ignorance actually of, of what's happening here in Vancouver, particularly in the downtown east side, or what's happening in the global south in the rural areas that we visit in Guatemala. And I do think that education has a, has a kind of civic mission to understand and to find ways to, to redistribute wealth and to foster tolerance. Fair enough. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you have a lot of friends who are doing who are from all different walks of life and they have different types of careers. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal career journey? Have you always been involved with academia? Yeah, as I said, I really, (laughs) I guess I'm a little unusual that way. I haven't really left school Mm -hmm. since kindergarten. But when I was working in the supplementary program in um, Washington, D.C., a lot, I would say half of our work was taking students out of the classroom, into museums, into different Mm -hmm. parts of the city. And so that meant that their classroom was being moved. Their education wasn't only limited to the classroom. It's Mm -hmm. it's similar to what we do in Guatemala and what we do in in the field school. But where that came from was, believe it or not, you'll be surprised, was from my experience as a, as a lifeguard. Oh, I was a lifeguard for five, six years, wow. uh, every summer on and off during the school year in high school. And I started quite young because I was a member of a swim club where they could like slide me into uh, teaching lessons or doing fill in mm-hmm. uh, lifeguarding. And I was placed in a variety of different pools in Syracuse, New York, where I grew up, wow. where there was a really uh, um, sharp difference in wealth from where I grew up and difference in ethnic groups. And that really sensitized me and opened my eyes to a variety of different ways of of thinking, of talking, of living. And I think that's what probably in the end pushed me in the direction of sociology. That must have had an immense impact on even your life now. It really um, did, did, and I, that that that's why it's pretty close to my memory because I, it's something that I think I'm drawing on every day. Is there something you wish you had known before starting your career as a professor? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good question. I think I, I think every young professor, and I've been at it for twenty more than twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been teaching for almost thirty in one capacity or another. Everyone needs to know that not every student thinks like you do as a teacher. Mm. Not every student is like, say, you know, many, most people who go through grad school or who go on to become professors, you know, they're striving for the high grade, right? Not every student's striving for that high grade. Not every student is equally 
interested in or adaptable to the academic lifestyle, but they can still get a lot and out of your class, right? And just thinking about the different experiences, the different trajectories and desires that students come into a classroom with, I, I really wish that I had known, I had been more attuned to that earlier. And, oh. <laughs> and not just like shock, like, whoa, there are D and C students here. What's up with that? <laughs> I think, well, that's, I, I'm going to do my best with them. And some students, that's all they want or all they can achieve. And that's fine too. That's really inspiring to hear, again, from a professor. A lot of the times, especially now that courses have moved online, students may or may not be getting the marks that they have normally been achieving or are hoping to get. So it's nice to know that it's okay to not get 100%. It's okay to not be the best. Yeah. And you got to be easy on yourself, right? You know, I was a bit hard on myself when I didn't get what I wanted or what I thought I deserved. And I really hope that students can go easy on themselves and think about what they learn rather than what they achieve. Are there any resources that have helped you along the way, either during your academic career, pursuing your master's and PhD, or even now as a professor? I mean, now, you know, when I hear the word resources, I often think of like counseling. And yeah, I did go to counseling. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because I thought, wow, I haven't dealt with, you know, my sexuality with my narrow upbringing as a Catholic school boy. And here I am in this cosmopolitan, multicultural (laughs) university, and I didn't know quite how to make my way there. So I think that is a good resource to have in UBC and other universities have really um, uh, made those resources even more accessible than they were when I was a kid. But even more, I think, I think that the resources of your fellow students, you know, you have to, you have to see every, yeah, it's good to see everyone, everyone around you as as like a portal, as a way of, as, as an entry point into other, into another world. And I found that actually very, scary at first, but also really comforting. So I found that the small group of friends or people that I hung out with or went to classes with, for me, those were probably the most important resource resource that I had as a, particularly as an undergraduate, but even more as a graduate student. So now in the workforce, something that's been discussed a lot in conversation is work-life balance and burnout. And especially with pandemic working from home type Mm -hmm. setup, it's definitely been a bit more prominent. Do you ever feel burnt out and how do you stay motivated when you do? You know, I I think, yeah, sometimes I feel a bit burnt out, but I think I do have a pretty good job where when I feel that I have uh, opportunities to step back, right? Mm -hmm. And not moving forward and all cylinders going. Right. So um, I think this is a pretty good job for that. I don't actually feel like the, the relentless whip of constantly <laughs> having to keep things going. I can step back when I need to, but I do feel tired and I feel exhausted sometimes. Mm-hmm. And again, I think I'm lucky that my partner and I, we both teach and we can each separate our workspaces a bit at home, but even more, as you can see right now, I'm <laughs> in my office at UBC where there's no air conditioning, though it's really hot. Oh, here. no. <laughs> there's enough breeze and I'm, it's comfortable enough for me to put in a decent enough day of work without a lot of distractions, right? Mm. So in that sense, I feel like I've, I've maintained a pretty good work, at least a work-home balance, right? Mm, of course, of course. Yeah. 
So I guess really just giving yourself the time to decompress and not constantly pushing yourself through everything. That's right. And you know, and sometimes it just means, for example, just before you called, oh. <laughs> said, hey, do you want to go for a walk today? And I said, well, I'm working on campus today. But yeah, let's maybe have a beer or something later. So that's going to be something that I don't usually do. But it's a nice way to end a hot, sweaty, hard day <laughs> in the office, right? So I'm going to sure. end a little bit earlier than I would normally. And I will allow myself to do that. The same with like, maybe I need a swim or maybe I need a walk at a certain time of day mm -hmm. so that I can regroup, you know, chill a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you have the opportunity to do that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any goals or next steps you want to take either in your career or just academically? Well, I've always got projects on the go and I'm working on a book, which... Um, the manuscript is due in December. Oh. I have a small uh, short commentary for a special issue of a journal, which is due this week. These kind of weigh on me a bit. These are like the goals that I have for the short term. And in the long term, I would like to write another book or two before I retire, you know, in five, 10 years or whatever. So those are sort of my goals. But really, the main thing I want to do is to keep uh, on the track that I am with the programs that I'm teaching in, with the kind of courses that I'm doing. Right. Um, that's really keeping me busy enough. And um, beyond that, I don't really have any like ambitions to be like a dean or right, the president right. <laughs> of a university or a powerful administrator or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about what it's like to you know, come up with the idea of writing a book and then writing it and getting it published? I know. I wish I knew how that worked, but it, oh. it just comes to me. Honestly, I think my best ideas start out in the classroom. And they usually start out with uh, a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper as I'm reading something for class. Right. And as students who've taken my course, you know, uh, will know, I often think in pictures. I think in you know, when I see a metaphor, an image, you know, like Iron Cage or a specter is haunting Europe in Marx's and Engels' Communist Manifesto, that evokes an image in my head in a story. And I try to see how much that's carried through these great ideas that have shaped later social science. Mm -hmm. And often that's where I develop my, my ideas, right? Oh. And, and I think, all right, I think this has been missed. In particular, I think you know, the literary and kind of artistic or aesthetic qualities of social science have been suppressed or overlooked by most of uh, my colleagues and contemporary social scientists. And I try to find a way to convey that in an accessible way to both student and faculty audiences. And that's pretty much where my books come, come mm. from. That's really interesting. We're going to move on to the side of the student. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the most important quality a student should have? I think openness to new ideas. And you know, some of that requires the discipline to remain attentive and focused. You know, I know this this will sound like old fashioned, but you find that by going to class. <laughs> you know, just like show up for class no matter how boring or how disorganized or it, the class might be or how you know, uninterested or disorganized or inattentive, you might feel. 
-hmm. But that's how you start. That's how you remain open to ideas by kind of working at it every day. Right. <clears throat> and sometimes the new ideas that, that you're exposed to in university are also the are often the old ideas that have been around forever, but have been lost or need to be revived now for any number of reasons. So I'd say that's probably the most important thing is just like, you know, the quality of dedication. Just mm. keep going at it uh, until you're done, right? Fake it until you make it. <laughs> or even fake it till you make it. Honestly, <laughs> I did not say that. You said that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say that's a good approach to take too, right? You're going to feel like an imposter a lot of the time, but uh, it's, it's really good to find out where that's coming from, right? Absolutely. Where the imposter syndrome is coming from. I certainly felt that myself. I admitted to my students this last summer when I was teaching and often over, over the years that maybe I'm an imposter because I have no degree in sociology and yet I'm a professor of sociology. <laughs> They're all in interdisciplinary studies, but I do feel like I belong here despite mm. faking it till I made it, right? Of course. I think it's also important to note that sociology does touch base in whatever you're studying really. Uh, and it ties into a bit of everything. So you don't have to have just a sociology background to pursue something sociology related. No, not at all. In fact, most students graduating with majors or minors in sociology don't go on to, you know, do a degree, a further degree in sociology. They do a variety mm -hmm. of different things, right? Mm -hmm. Students, especially going into university, they're always encouraged to seek professors, especially during office hour times. But I know a lot of students, also speaking for myself in first year, it's very easy to be intimidated by professors. Do you have anything you can speak to that? Yeah, you know, I think, I honestly think that one of the really good things that come out of the pandemic will be virtual office hours. Oh, okay. I think that's gonna be either mandated or strongly encouraged in, all, in future years. So we could be talking as you and I are right now on Zoom as an office hour. Mm -hmm. And I think that does chill things out a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still a little intimidating, you know, because you can see I've got this massive set of books behind <laughs> I'm the prof, you know, with the gray hair in the office. But at the same time, you know, maybe maybe in the future, I will put in a new background, right? <laughs> You know, like it'll be English Bay or something. And students can put their own background there if that's an issue of what's happening behind you. Mm -hmm. So I think that I think I, I would say to students, of course, I want them to get over their hesitation. I want them to overcome their uh, their fear or their anxiety about meeting the prof. But, you know, most profs are going to be totally cool and happy sure. to see you. Sure, we're busy. We got stuff to do. But if it's our office hours or if we said come by at this time more or less, we mean it. So make full use of it. Mm -hmm. I had the same anxiety when I was in university. And I have to say every time I did go and talk to the prof, I really felt I had made some step forward, an important one for whatever I went there for, usually like an essay or to talk about an exam or something else. Yeah. Right. What if a student wants to connect with their professor, but they don't really have any specific questions about the lecture or even the exam? They just want to speak with the professor. How would you recommend for a student to go about doing that? 
be honest, say, I don't really have a specific question or anything, but I would like to talk to you. It's good to say, it's good to just, well, fake it till you make it and say, I have a few ideas, right? <laughs> or sure. a that there's a cup, there's a thing or something that came up in the reading or in the lecture the other day that I wanted to talk to you about. Or maybe, you know, sometimes we do just want to know, we're curious ourselves about, you know, what, what motivates students, what interests them. So you could just come in and say, hey, by the way, I'm working, um, you know, I've been working frontline through the pandemic, or I'm working, you know, as a cashier at a supermarket. <laughs> and, you know, I'm having, I'm, I'm having some trouble balancing my, my study and my work life. We want to hear that too, right? And we might even be able to give you some strategies on how to find that balance and maybe even make a concession if you need like a little bit more time to complete an assignment or a paper or something. Those are all things that we're, that really most profs are open to. And I really encourage students to just make that contact and talk about whatever's on your mind. All right. You heard it here first from Dr. Kempel. If you want to reach out to your professor, go for it. Um, not me because I'm busy no I'm <laughs> do you have any advice for someone who wants to pursue a similar career as a professor more targeting towards students who are in grad school right now mm. yeah you know the first rule of grad school for me and I really tried to push students to consider it is to forge your own path through the institution Everybody, myself included, is going to be telling grad students, this is the best way to do things. Here's the best practice. If you want to become a prof, publish in this journal. Or if you, and we'll all have examples of that. Mm -hmm. But the first rule is not to take all that advice. It's to find your own path, right? <laughs> and you do have to keep working and you have to keep studying and you have to love it, right? You have to find your own, you have to find your own fun with it. So, mm -hmm. I'd say the second rule is, is to keep finding ways to enjoy it, to have fun with, mm. uh, with the ideas, with the tasks, with the, even the deadlines you have in front of you. And that will lead you to the path that, that you need. That could be the professor. It could be a, another kind of teaching job. It could be quite a different career altogether. Mm -hmm. But you do have to find your joy in it as well. I think that actually speaks to any career out there, learning to make fun out of what you're doing? Yeah, you know, I don't have a ton of experience with other careers other than, you know, sociological study of workplaces and so on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that particularly in the academic career, I think the space for free thinking and for independent thought and the space for enjoying it is the, the potential seems to be there. For sure. Uh, possibly more than other places, but I would hope that everybody could find it whatever they end up doing. All right. So just before we start to wrap things up, we're going to move towards a bit more personal questions. The first one being, what is your favorite thing about your career as a professor um, or as a writer? I know, I know. Uh, you know, if you were to ask my partner that, he would say, I love the research. I love the writing. I love that too. But I do have some writing anxieties that make that less than enjoyable a lot of the mm. time. But for me, the thing that I consistently and constantly enjoy is teaching and interaction with students mm. and students of all levels, right? So even though most of my courses in sociology are third and fourth year, I also teach in the grad school and they 
and PhD students. Mm -hmm. And I try to find any opportunity I can to teach in Arts One, which is a first year program. So I do have some, I, I, I'm able to, to interact with students from each, like every level or every grade of Great. the university. And I totally enjoy that. And I hold on to it jealously. I resist the invitations to become an administrator because that always takes me out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the real anchor for what I do. That's really sweet. <laughs> Is there someone who really inspires you to keep doing what you do, either within the field of sociology or, again, as a professor? Yeah, I have a few inspirations. You know, my first inspirations were my two PhD supervisors, H.T. Hmm. Uh, Wilson and John O'Neill. They're both old and retired now. Wilson is much more active than O'Neill, but I've edited collections of their work. And to me, they're still a model for what I'm kind of striving for. That kind of scholarship and that kind of style of publishing is, um, you know, is, is mostly outdated or a thing of the past now, but it's extremely precious and sacred and valuable. And that is still the lodestar for my career. But the things that also inspire me are the people who are around me every day, colleagues, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so Marini Samawani is a dear friend and a really close colleague who inspires me and who I'm in really regular contact with, as well as many other of my colleagues in sociology and in other disciplines. My partner is in English. That's a key inspiration as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, also the students, and I see that they always surprise me, that they come up with ideas and ways of expressing things that, that I don't believe that I taught, <laughs> but mm -hmm. are supersede what I think can be done with the ideas and with the readings, with the materials that they have in front of them. So they inspire me too. That's awesome. All right, we're going to move on to a fun one now. Okay. If you could have any superpower, which one would it be and why? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> First of all, I'm no fan of Marvel Comics or any of those superhero superpower things. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Since I have played this game before, I would say what I've said, you know, when I play this with my nieces and nephews, in some way, I would like to experiment with the possibility of being completely invisible. Oh, it's an impossibility in sociology. Yeah. We're always there, right? Yeah. The fly on the wall is on the wall somewhere, right? But um, I would like to have the uh, becoming completely invisible. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't want it all the time, but I'd like to know what that really feels like and then what kind of insights or knowledge I might gain from that. Okay, very insightful. And finally, do you have any book recommendations you'd like to offer to our listeners? This could be a book that you've written yourself. Of course, I'm totally going to recommend my last book on Zimmel. It's really great. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to uh, be humble, but I'll you. <laughs> so you know what it looks like. It has a picture of ruins on the cover. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I am recommending it because it's the first book that I wrote that I really made an effort to appeal to non-academic audiences, even though it's a very academic book. The guy um, that I'm writing about is Georg Zimmel. He's a founder of sociology, but he was also a philosopher. He also wrote, he also wrote about art and about everyday life. Um, but anyway, 
I would I, I recommend his works, but also my work as a way as an introduction to it. But the thing I would really recommend for because this will be people from all over the place would be a careful, patient reading of Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto. Mm. Not with the you know with the blinders of 20th century communism and socialism on, but you know with the sensibility that these are people trying to write to help mobilize people for their freedom. Mm -hmm. And they did it with every resource they had, literary, intellectual, political. And that would be the thing I would most recommend, more mm -hmm. than my own stuff. <laughs> and Simmel, that's spelled S-I-M-M-E-L. That's right. S-I-M-M-E-L is the name of my book. And that's the name of the guy that I'm writing about. But it's, a, it's kind of a comprehensive um, study of the early potential of sociology, right? Mm -hmm. Um, through the, the a study of this guy's really eclectic, multidimensional work. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for your time. That was a really valuable conversation that we just had. Do you have any final messages you'd like to leave for our listeners? Uh, <laughs> I should come up with something wise or at least funny right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I would say, you know, the world is changing. It's often necessary to feel sad about where things are right now. But I would say take the world, take yourself, take the people around you one step and one day at a time. And often that just means I'm going to get up and read. I'm going to get up and do this. I'm going to take this attitude toward what I have to do today. But I really think that, you know, jumping to the next 10 years or the next five years of your life or of the history of the globe is useful as an intellectual exercise, but not necessarily as one to take in your daily life. And just, just think about what you're doing now and why that means something to you. Just really living in the moment then. <laughs> living in the moment without ignoring what happened in the past or what could happen in the future, but living in the moment. You're not, we're not living in the past and we're not living in the future. We are living now. Mm -hmm. So embrace that and, and explore what that means to you. Yeah. All right. So we're going to wrap it up here. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. To all of our listeners, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at 2X Education to learn more about 2X and to keep up with our updates. That's all for today. Catch you on the next episode of Crew X by 2X. Mm -hmm.